because Michael was unusual as a person. Uh, you, I'm sure you've heard him speak. His speech was not the speech of an ordinary person. Uh, it would be easy to create the impression that he was gay. Uh, he wasn't. And he knew this boy, who was one of the boys. By the way, he would often have boys on sleepovers the way kids do. Uh, when I was a kid, that was a big thing. I would spend a weekend at a friend's house, or a friend would spend a weekend at my house, and uh, that was something kind of exciting to look forward to. But he was doing it in his 30s, and the boys were very young. So it, again, created a suspicious environment. From Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio, this is Telephone Stories. Episode 1, A Suspicious Environment. Hey, Omar, what are you up to? I uh, just made breakfast for Will, and uh, I'm studying for a new opera we're doing at the Annenberg Theater. Fancy pants. <laughs> this is Omar Crook. He's an opera singer, and we met a couple of years ago when a mutual friend said I should be on his podcast, Living with a Genius. It's mostly interviews with actual accomplished people, composers, classical singers, fancy types. Genius, it takes a lot to get on my show. Genius, you're I'm obviously not a genius, but because I did a lot of improv comedy in Chicago and just moved to Southern California, the mutual friend said I should do his show so that I could talk about, I don't know, being a waiter and trying to make it as a funny playwright. It's like looking at him, Alice, and a guy knocks at the window. My dad's like, how you doing? Like, hey, I'm, and he like <laughs> buys me like a new thing. But you know, it was fun. And Omar and I hit it off. So afterward, I told him about this idea I had for a show. Because there's a podcast idea. I was Where we'd take with, memories uh, from our childhood or old family legends and trace them backward and see if they checked out. We could do big stories like Whatever happened to that kid whose parents put him in that balloon hoax in 2009? To little ones about our past. Some funny, some very depressing. We traced these stories back like the game of telephone from when we were kids, or the whisper game, Chinese whispers. Part of the deal, too, was that we would record our phone calls as we figured out the stories. One particular idea was to take a closer look at a figure who loomed large for both of us when we were young. We would go back and investigate the cases against Michael Jackson. We were both huge fans from growing up. His music affected us each at different times in our lives, often profoundly. Jackson was an extraordinary star, without question, the most famous and exciting entertainer on the planet. He was fabulously wealthy and committed himself to incredible acts of charity, both publicly and often anonymously to help children. Of course, that's where things get murky for us, the children. That's the tough part. Omar and I both watched as Jackson faced charges not once, but twice, of molesting children. First, in 1993, and then, amazingly, again, in 2005. We had different reactions to the 2005 case. To Omar, Jackson looked at least creepy and maybe guilty. To me, the case looked flimsier. Celebrities were always susceptible to blackmail and false charges, and Michael Jackson was the biggest celebrity of all time, which to me made him look like the biggest target of all time. So we set out to find out for ourselves. And then, 
as we dug into the reporting, this happened. Ten years after Michael Jackson's death, Leaving Neverland is a documentary not about Jackson, says the filmmaker, but the stories of two men who say the pop star sexually abused them as young children. Reporter Natalie Morales on the Today Show. James Safechuck, now 41, met Jackson when he starred opposite the singer in a Pepsi commercial. He says he was 10 when they began a sexual relationship. 36-year-old Wade Robson met Jackson after winning a local dance competition. He says the abuse began when he was was just seven years old. Here's New York Times critic at large, Wesley Morris, on CBS This Morning. It's Michael Jackson. I mean, nobody, Woody Allen, R. Kelly, Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, Roman, I mean, you know, any one of these men, Matt Lauer, nobody has had the sort of cultural impact that Michael Jackson has had. Michael Jackson is responsible for, like, I would say 30% of the music that we've gotten since Michael Jackson. So which was it? Was Michael Jackson a serial child molester whose fame and money gave him access to victims? Or was he a generous protector of children, maligned for his good intentions? We decided to find out. We started at what was, for us, the beginning. Okay, Omar, big question. What's your primal Michael Jackson memory? Well, what do you mean? What do you mean by primal exactly? Well, almost everybody over thirty-five has one. I, I, this is my theory. You're older than me, but like everybody kind of has this, you know, life-changing memory of Michael Jackson when they were children, right? Right, right, right. Okay, so I get it. Um, I guess for me, it was Christmas Day. Uh, it was nineteen eighty-two. I remember it perfectly because I had just turned twelve uh, a couple weeks earlier, and for my birthday, I got a Sony Walkman, which was one of those um, silver bricks. It was, I mean, I was blown away that I could walk around, listen to whatever music I wanted, wherever I was, and you know, I think the rest of the entire world felt the same way, and that in itself was mind blowing. It was a game changer. Anyway, I got a cassette of Thriller for Christmas, and I remember feeling more excited than I'd ever been to get music. And I was sitting alone on the sofa in our living room, and I popped it in for the first time. And I had never, ever heard anything like it, and I never looked back. I mean, I was totally hooked. I probably, even though I'm a professional musician, you know, I've, I've been doing music for like 25 years, I don't think I've ever had a musical experience like that ever since. So you were you were a fan? Yeah, I'm still a fan, of course. And what happened to Michael Jackson after Thriller? I don't know. You know, I I kind of lost track after his bad album. I think a lot of people feel that way. It's like once the shit got weird, we all looked away. To say that, I'm saying I don't think you can look at someone as your hero without fully understanding the circumstances of their life. Yeah, I can see that. Look, I mean, it has all these elements in the story. There's a one-sided media. There's lawyers and sheriff's department and the district attorney supposedly obsessed with getting a conviction of Michael Jackson. His fans that say it was all a conspiracy. You've got multiple payoffs to accusers, private detectives. I mean, I'm pitching this idea to you like it's a sexy drama, but it's probably just going to end up being super heartbreaking. I know, man. And there's so many moving parts. It's overwhelming. I don't even know where we'd even start. Well, I'm just going to start calling people. Like, remember that 
the Tomcat project, that play I wrote about Tom Cruise, Katie Holmes, and Scientology, there was this character, Burt Fields. Yeah, by the way, you do know that that play is is when I knew we'd be friends. I mean, it was... Anyway, you should write another one, but go on. I'm actually working on a new one. I just (laughs) submitted it to my (laughs) folks. Um, But yeah, Burt Fields is Tom Cruise's attorney, and he came to the play in L.A., and he was in the audience one night, and I... I actually barfed in my mouth because I recognized him and I thought he was there to like serve me papers to take me to court. But he ended up loving the play and he gave a standing ovation. Uh, and then he was there with his wife, Barbara Guggenheim, and they invited me over to their house for fajitas. Holy smokes. I mean, Bert's a big deal, man. I mean, he represented the Beatles, Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman, Gore Vidal, Madonna, Travolta, Jeffrey Katzenberg against Disney, Angelina Jolie and the Brad Pitt divorce. I mean, so he's no slouch. Are you, are you just going to, um, let me guess, are you just going to meet with him and be like, hey, no big deal? I mean, I'm going to try to act like it's no big deal. But <laughs> if I do get a meeting, I'm going to need your help because honestly, I don't know how the fuck to use any of this recording equipment. Well, listen, man. I mean, here's the thing. I'm a I'm an opera singer and you're a playwright. So I'm not I mean, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm mostly a waiter, to be honest. <laughs> but yeah, I realize we're not big investigative journalist yet. I just want to find out what really happened with Michael Jackson. Well, yeah, I mean, I think everybody does. I mean, almost everybody, at least. Um, full name is Brandon, B-R-A-N. Last name, Ockborn, O-G-P, is in boy, O-R-N. To schedule an interview with whom? Who do I tell them? Oh, sorry. About an interview. Me. So I'd oh, like just to you, just, just Brandon. Yeah. Okay. Um, you're not affiliated with any company. Or uh, no. Well, that's going to be closer than five inches, unless I. What if I lean back? Oh, well, that's too far. Too far. <laughs> oh, what if I move my chair? Right up, all right. Well, all it, right. It'll, it'll tilt and hit him right in the, in the knee. That's all right. Okay. <clears throat> you need to get level. Or... No, I'll do it while we're on the flight. Could you just, for purposes of radio, state your name, yeah. who you are, and, and what My you My name is Bert Fields, and I'm a lawyer, mostly, and I write books, uh, and I enjoy life. <laughs> Could you tell me where you, uh, where you grew up and how you came about working and uh, getting into law? Yeah. I was born in Los Angeles. I'm the only person you ever met who was born in Los Angeles. Uh, at least at my age, uh, and I uh, grew up here. Somebody said, because we're out on the coast and I was still kind of a kid on the beach, and somebody said there's this place called Harvard and that's the best law school. I decided I'd try and I actually got in, which was a shock, and I went there. Soon though, Fields was representing moguls in Hollywood, including David Geffen. A client of mine named David Geffen was close to Michael. And he called one day and said, how would you like to represent Michael Jackson? At the time, Michael Jackson was, I guess, the biggest star in the world. So I didn't say no. I said, that would be fine, David. (laughs) I didn't even spend a lot of time thinking about it. Burt's work for Jackson was mostly on the business side of things. Contracts, 
in negotiations. I enjoyed uh, making his record contract because it was very interesting to me, the issues, and representing him was exciting. I traveled uh, really throughout Europe on his tour That's with right. him, uh, which was fascinating. Uh, and I saw him under pressure, and I, I came to like and respect him, uh, not just as a hugely talented person, I liked him as an individual. However, one of Jackson's dreams in the late 80s and early 90s was to become a film star, something that ended up being problematic from a business standpoint. One wonderful evening uh, with Michael Ovitz and Ron Meyer, who were his two principal agents, and I at dinner at Michael's, and a young man from CAA was pitching movie roles to Michael. And uh, you can't believe some of the roles. I mean, it was, Michael really wanted to do a movie. And poor uh, Michael sat there and he listened to this pitch was, it was things like, well, you could play a hard-boiled Marine sergeant in the Philippines, uh, Michael, <laughs> you know, there were roles like that. You, you could be third baseman for the uh, St. Louis Ball Club, <laughs> and, <you> know, <laughs> and, and it was nothing. I mean, Michael Jackson had actually starred in one film, 1978's *The Wiz*, with Diana Ross, Nipsey Russell, and Richard Pryor. Nice. Thank you. And good luck. Adapted from the 1975 Tony-winning musical, the movie reimagines The Wizard of Oz, but set in an alternate reality New York City with soul and disco music numbers. But Jackson was in costume as the Scarecrow. And this was in 1978, before his many plastic surgeries. Can you help us, sir? What's in it for me? We'd be very grateful. <laughs> yuck, 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 yuck. To make matters worse, during the pitch meeting with CAA in the 1990s, the lunch that was ordered, according to Burt Fields, was soup. Possibly ramen. Steaming bowls of ramen. Well, here's what happened. We had, each of us had a big bowl of soup in front of us, and we were eating our soup, and this poor young man from CAA is going through these roles, and he had a whole list of them, they were all like that. You know, you could be a professional football player, you're the fullback, and you know, it was like that. So pretty soon, uh, I see Ronnie and Michael are looking over, uh, Ronnie and Michael, Mikeovitz, are looking over at Michael Jackson, and I kind of hear noises, so I look over, and he's got his, head and he, he's starting to cry he's got his head just over the soup and then all three of us look closer and his face goes down into the soup and he lifts his head up and he's got soup dripping down his face and he's crying and after about three more minutes he gets up and runs from the room uh, it was just extraordinary despite not achieving fame as an actor jackson was busy as ever on January 19, 1993, he performed at Bill Clinton's presidential gala the night before his inauguration. During his number, 
Jackson brought up to the stage dozens of children dressed in costumes from all over the world. Jackson's closeness with children was nothing new to Bert, who'd seen Jackson traveling with youngsters on his tours and appearing in public with young male actors such as Macaulay Culkin and Emmanuel Lewis since the 1980s. Michael had almost no childhood. Michael had grown up. Uh, he was on the stage at five uh, and never got off. He never really had any of the experiences that a normal child would have. He loved having kids around. He would take busloads of kids and bring them up to his place up in Santa Barbara County. And he had a Ferris wheel and all kinds of uh, stuff that you would have in an amusement park there, plus a zoo. And kids loved it. I, this is all background to this. As a result, I think he would have been easy prey, and in fact was easy prey, for anyone who wanted to claim that he was molesting these young boys that would visit. There were young girls, too, because Michael was unusual as a person. Uh, you, I'm sure you've heard him speak. His speech was not the speech of an ordinary person. Uh, it would be easy to create the impression that he was gay. Uh, he wasn't. And he knew this boy was one of the boys. By the way, he would often have boys on sleepovers the way kids do. Uh, when I was a kid, that was a big thing. I would spend a weekend at a friend's house or a friend would spend a weekend at my house and uh, that was something kind of exciting to look forward to. But he was doing it in his 30s and the boys were very young. So it again created a suspicious environment. I was convinced it was absolutely uh, free of any kind of sexual abuse. I don't think there was any sexual quality to it at all. I mean, I don't even think they were doing the normal things that kids would do, talking about sex and what, are, what a mom and dad do. But in the spring of 1992, a chance encounter with a young boy changed Michael Jackson's trajectory forever. My name is Diane Diamond. I am a veteran reporter. I ply my trade in radio, television, print, I've written three books, working on a fourth book right now, and I hail from Albuquerque, New Mexico. That's where I grew up, and that's where I learned my morals and my ethics. If Bert Fields was convinced that Jackson's relationships with young boys was innocent, no one else has fought harder to dismantle that narrative than Diane Diamond. She wrote a book on Jackson's criminal cases called Be Careful Who You Love, which was based on her decade-long involvement covering Michael Jackson's scandals, beginning with her time at the tabloid TV show Hard Copy in 1993. Tonight, on Hard Copy. Cynthia had the face of an angel. But her smile masked the heart of a killer. Oh, man, I remember that show. You do? I remember being on, but we weren't allowed to watch it because it was so salacious, so I'd sneak watch it when my parents were asleep. The photographer's secret Maryland photos were buried in his backyard. Diamond aggressively covered the Jackson Chandler story while working at Hard Copy. Well, there are a couple of different versions about how Jackson met Jordy Chandler. I think the most significant one... Uh, was 
at the offices of Rent a Wreck. He um, his car ran out of gas one day on Wilshire Boulevard, and a kind passerby said, "Hey, there's a place over here to rent a car." Well, that office was owned by Jordy Chandler's stepdad. Yeah, so you need to set this up for me. Yes, but before I do that, there's one other person I need to introduce here that is also part of the story. My name is Lauren Weiss, and uh, I became a deputy district attorney in 1979. Obviously, this is in Los Angeles. Right, right, got it. And Weiss always wanted to be a defense attorney. I always wanted to be a defense attorney, but uh, the public defender's office was not hiring at the time. And so uh, I knew that the DA's office had, a, had all the discretion and all the ability to do the right things. Uh, and so I rationalized and said, well, I should be a DA because they need people like me uh, in that office. We thought she was only going to be in the district attorney's office for like three years and then make the big bucks as a private defense attorney. But then she started to love the job and she stayed there for like 24 years and she found a specialty. I specialized in sex crimes. Uh, I handled every single child molestation case uh, on the West Side and I handled uh, cases where victims were very much traumatized. And in all the other cases, I supervised other DAs doing that type of case. And when Garcetti was elected... Gil Garcetti, the famed L.A. district attorney, not his son, Mayor Eric Garcetti. Right, right, I know him. He called me and he uh, asked me if I would come back downtown and be the, uh, the acting uh, head deputy of the sex crimes division. And, um, you know, I thought about it. I was loving doing trials, but I decided that something like that doesn't come along all the time. And, and so I went downtown. So when I got downtown, I had only been there for a very short period of time. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the Michael Jackson case landed in my lap. But like, how did this just land on her lap? She got a call from LAPD. We got the call from LAPD uh, that this was <laughs> that that they had uh, a complaint that came through. I believe it was a, a mandatory reporter, uh, a therapist, and they were looking into it. Okay, back up because I want to know how this whole thing starts because this is about Jackson and Jordy Chandler, right? Right. So, so, all right, give me the opening scene here. Okay, spring of 1992, right? In Los Angeles. In Beverly Hills, May 1992. The median temperature for that month in L.A. was 70 degrees. It was a breezy month with wind speeds of 9 to 20 miles an hour. <laughs> all right, I got it, I got it. Michael Jackson was driving alone in a black Jeep. He wore a disguise, as he often did, and this time it was a veil covering his face in dark, oversized sunglasses. And at some point along the way, his car broke down. Jackson called 911. The person on the other end of the phone told him a car stalling didn't constitute an emergency, and he should dial the non-emergency number. Jackson didn't know quite what to do, so he told them that he was Michael Jackson. They either didn't believe him, or... They didn't care. Reporter Diane Diamond. 
he um, his car ran out of gas one day on Wilshire Boulevard and a kind passerby said hey there's a place over here to rent a car well that office was owned by Jordy Chandler's stepdad if you're looking for a larger or more reliable vehicle for your holidays give Rent-A-Wreck a call drive a good bargain in 1985 June Chandler divorced Evan and remarried David Schwartz, who became Jordan Chandler's stepfather. David Schwartz and June had a daughter together named Lily. According to a 1986 profile of David Schwartz in the LA Times, he was the owner of the sixth largest car rental company in the United States. He chose his uniform as faded jeans, sneakers with red socks, a black v-neck t-shirt, a Levi's jacket, black baseball cap, and the finishing touch a pair of shades tinted the color of red wine. Someone once described him as the Jewish Steve McQueen, but at the time of the profile, he was mostly bald, with patches of curly red hair stuck out of the sides of his ball cap and large bags under his eyes from overworking, getting only three hours of sleep a night. He rented to famous actors, Dan Aykroyd, Richard Gere, and Ally McGraw, He owned what was reportedly the largest fleet of convertible Mustangs. They were featured with Warren Beatty in the movie Shampoo. The article goes on that, with the money he's made renting secondhand cars, he has built a mini empire in real estate. Houses, lots, commercial buildings, storage facilities. He appeared on The Phil Donahue Show and was written up in Time, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times. A book on successful entrepreneurs contains an entire chapter about him. He was considered the Colonel Sanders of the used rental car industry. I have always felt that there is something a little aspirational about the Chandlers. This is Ren Graves, a freelance writer who has written extensively on the Jackson cases. A little like um, uh, wanting to be the upper crust and wanting to like, uh, rub shoulders with famous people. Reporter Diane Diamond. So the minute Michael Jackson wandered in and said, hi, can I rent a car? He got Jordy on the phone. He said, get down here right away. And they met. According to author J. Randy Terborelli, whose book, Michael Jackson, The Magic and the Madness, is considered the closest thing to an official, sanctioned biography on Jackson, it was actually the wife of rent a employee, Mel Green, who spotted Jackson on the side of the road, moments after he'd called 911 for help. The woman called Mel Green, and he raced to pick up Jackson, and on the way, called Schwartz saying, I got him. Schwartz was in disbelief. You gotta be kidding me, is it really Michael Jackson? Schwartz thought that perhaps it was an impersonator. Mel Green confirmed it was the real Michael Jackson, and Schwartz then excitedly called June, his wife, who at this point was separated from him, although they were on good terms. Her son, Jordan, also known as Jordy, was a huge Jackson admirer, and they rushed over to the Renarec offices, arriving just before Jackson and Mel Green pulled up. When Jackson arrived, wearing his veil and sunglasses, June and Jordy greeted him effusively, according to Tara Borelli's account. From her testimony in the 2005 criminal trial against Michael Jackson, June described writing down a phone number and handing it to the singer, 
saying, If you'd like to see Jordy, or if he could call you, or if you'd like to speak to him, here's our number, and you can give him a call. Uh, One of the interesting things about this case, of course, is like information asymmetry. Writer, Ren Graves. Because a lot of the people who say they were hurt by Michael Jackson later signed non-disclosure agreements, um, but spoke a lot in court, perhaps. or So, so like, June, uh, J- what we think June is feeling or doing, um, at least in the sources that I have found, is often, like, uh, passed through the screen of some of the men in her life, like Dave Schwartz or, you know, Evan Chandler saying, like, oh, this is what my ex-wife wanted to do. And so um, uh, perhaps if circumstances were different and and she felt more comfortable expressing herself, we would have a a different view of her. In Tara Borelli's account, at Renorek, Jordy became embarrassed at the notion of his mother pushing a friendship with him onto Jackson. But moments later, David Schwartz entered the office and proclaimed, for sure, give him a call, Michael. He's your biggest fan. Yeah, okay, Jackson said, signing the paperwork for his rental. He stuffed the paper with Jordy's number in his pocket and then looked at Jordy over his sunglasses, saying, So look, I'll call you, Jordy, okay? Sure, Jordy answered, smiling wide. Oh boy, he said to his mother. Yeah, Jackson responded, laughing at Jordy's excitement. Oh boy. All right, so quick question. Go ahead. So David Schwartz and June Chandler were already separated and living apart, is that right? Correct. So why would he have June bring Jordy down then? And again, information asymmetry, right? Writer, Ren Graves, again. Perhaps this uh, this meeting of Michael Jackson was like a little, like a, a peace offering or like a, hey, we're doing fun things together. I don't know. All right, got it, got it. So this is where Jackson and Jordan Chandler begin hanging out, is that right? Not exactly. Because at the time, Jackson was prepping for the first leg of his dangerous world tour, which left for Europe that June. And after they met, he started uh, calling him a lot uh, from while he was traveling overseas. Former Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss, who interviewed Jordy Chandler once the case broke. And there was something um, very fateful in their meeting because this child had met uh, Michael uh, before, years before, at some kind of a health food restaurant in Los Angeles and remembered the experience. And so they had words then. And so uh, when he met Michael on the second occasion, uh, he, he told him about that and he reminded him about that. Additional documentation for the prosecutors and investigators on the case came from Jordy's father, Evan, and a report from the Los Angeles Department of Children and Family Services, which is what ultimately propelled the case into public view. Later, Jordy's uncle, Raymond Chandler, not the detective writer, wrote a book on the subject called All That Glitters. The book, self-published, chronicled the entire saga, from Jackson and Jordy meeting, traveling, their sleepovers, and the custody dispute that erupted because of it. From what we know, None of these items were ever disputed by Jackson or his lawyers. What was disputed, however, were the molestation claims. Yeah, obviously. So now I need to introduce this other guy, so hold on. Hey, my name is Wyatt Gray. I'm a comedian and voice actor. Wyatt Gray, not to be confused with the writer, Ren Graves. Wyatt is going to be the voice of Jordan Chandler's father, Evan Chandler, 
from his alleged diary as we piece together this story from investigators and prosecutors and court records, transcripts, and the like. So, to back us up again, Jordy had actually met Michael Jackson before the car rental situation. Chandler's alleged diary was given to reporter Diane Diamond, and excerpts of this so-called diary of Evan Chandler appear in her book, Be Careful Who You Love, about the Jackson cases. Although the diary itself was not part of the law enforcement agent's investigation, key dates and events were corroborated by Diane Diamond with law enforcement officials from evidence gathered during their investigation. Shall I start? Go ahead, Wyatt. Before he was five years old, Jordy met Michael Jackson two separate occasions by chance at an L.A. restaurant called The Golden Temple. Soon after that, Michael became his hero, like he was to millions of kids. Jordy had his albums, knew the words to his songs, and taught himself how to dance like Michael. A few years later, Michael ended up in Broadham Memorial Hospital after being burned in the Pepsi commercial. Jordy was saddened by the news. So, with his mother June's encouragement, he wrote Michael a get-well note, included his phone number, enclosed a picture, and gave it to a bodyguard at the hospital. Michael called Jordy that same day and thanked him. A short time later, Jordy got a call from a secretary at MJJ Productions requesting that he try out for an ad they were doing. All he had to do was show up and pose. Michael was not at the audition. Several kids tried out. Jordy was not chosen. Just before Michael did the L.A. concerts of his bad tour, June got an unexpected phone call from Frank DeLeo, Michael's manager, who asked if she would like tickets. June said yes, and Mr. DeLeo sent her four tickets. Jordy did not meet Michael at the concert. Jackson reportedly later said that he and Jordy's relationship was written in the stars, but at this point, he was just calling the boy while he was on tour. Jackson called him, I since found out, constantly. Reporter, Diane Diamond. He called him from the road when he was out on the dangerous tour. He, their, their phone calls would last an hour, two hours, three hours sometimes. Uh, and Jordy would later explain that it was all about how fabulous life was at Neverland. You should come and live the kind of life I live. I can show you places and take you uh, to areas that you never would ever go before. And, you know, come with me. The content of these telephone calls between Jordan Chandler and Jackson while he was on the Dangerous Tour were also corroborated in both the original complaint filed by Jordan Chandler's attorney and later in a signed declaration about his relationship with Jackson. Author Tara Borelli writes that during one of these phone calls with Jordy while traveling Europe, Jackson put on another boy with him, Brett Barnes, who Jackson called his cousin. Jackson's team referred to Barnes as his traveling companion, and the boy began to appear in the news as Jackson made stops along his tour. They've been waiting for three days to see their hero, and when the moment came, it was the type of bizarre appearance you'd expect from the man they call Wacko Jacko. Spotted on the roof of the Dorchester Hotel where his entourage of 26 is staying, the pop star seemed to be playing hide-and-seek. While a crowd cheered in the streets below, Jackson appeared on the roof, wearing a red silk shirt and his fedora, tossing paper airplanes below with the young Brett Barnes, who was dressed in an oversized letterman jacket 
in a Batman baseball cap. Joined by his traveling companion and nine-year-old cousin, he began throwing items to his admirers below. Police were worried about the rowdy crowd and asked Jackson to stop. He did, and they went back to his room. Scenes like this weren't uncommon for Jackson, but they were certainly over the top and odd. He knew, though, how to craft a good moment for the media, how to generate headlines, and how to tease tabloids with a sense of mystique. But by the 1990s, Jackson was soon losing control of the press. Stories that began to damage Jackson, his odd appearance from multiple cosmetic surgeries, and the increasing lightening of his skin began to overshadow his persona as Wacko Jacko. He needed to get a hold of the narrative, and one way to do that was to give access to his clamoring fans and the public. Luckily, there was a spectacular opportunity on the horizon. Good evening, I'm Oprah Winfrey, bringing you a world-exclusive interview with the most elusive superstar in the history of music, Michael Jackson. I'm here in front of his California home. It's a ranch on the outskirts of Santa Barbara where just inside is the man who has broken every possible musical record, denied interviews and defied definition for years. Jackson gave his first live interview in 14 years to Oprah Winfrey on February 10th, 1993. It was here that Jackson presented himself as an artist who struggled with the impact of his own fame. Were you as happy offstage as you appear to be on stage? Well, on stage for me was home. Mm-hmm. I was most comfortable, and still most comfortable, on stage. But once I got off stage, I was like very sad. Really? Yes. And sad from the beginning? Sad since it first started? Since Lonely, the Lonely, sad, having to face with popularity and all of that. Uh, there were times when I had great times with my brothers, pillow fights and things, but I was always used to always cry from loneliness. When Oprah addressed his changing physical appearance by asking him directly how many plastic surgeries he'd gone through, Jackson replied, very, very little. Jackson also discussed the rumors that he was trying to become white by announcing that he suffered from vitiligo, a rare disease that discolors patches of the skin. But another, more important narrative appeared in the interview, and that was Jackson explaining that the reasons he surrounded himself with children was because of missing out on his own childhood. And I think every child needs a place to escape into a child's world, into a child's imagination. Was there ever a time you could do that? No, and that is why I think now, because I didn't have it thin, I compensate for that. Really? I mean, people wonder why I always have children around, because I, I find the thing that I never had through them. Perhaps not for the first time, but certainly for the largest audience, Jackson explained that he was compensating for the primal injuries of child stardom by living an opulent childhood as an adult. You know, Disneyland, amusement parks, Mm -hmm. uh, arcade games. I adore all that stuff because when I was little, it was always work, 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 from one concert to the next. At one point during the interview, Oprah asked about Jackson's relationship with Elizabeth Taylor, who often accompanied him to events and stayed regularly at Neverland. I heard, too, this was another one of those rumors, that you had proposed to Elizabeth Taylor at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Elizabeth Taylor is gorgeous, beautiful, and she still is today. Yeah. And I'm crazy about her. Yeah, but did you propose to her? I would like to have. Yeah. Well, Elizabeth Taylor is here. Liz, can we bring Liz in now? As if popping by to borrow a cup of sugar, 
Elizabeth Taylor arrived glamorously and gave a sweeping clarification on her thoughts about Jackson's lifestyle. What, what do you think is most misunderstood about Michael Jackson, Liz? Uh, all the things you mentioned. Uh, he is the least weird man I've ever known. Mm -hmm. He is highly intelligent, uh, shrewd, um, intuitive, understanding, sympathetic, generous, to almost a fault of himself. Uh -huh. And he just, if, if he has any eccentricities, it's that he is like larger than life, and some people just can't accept that or face it or understand it. According to biographer Tara Borelli, Jackson later gave Elizabeth Taylor a $250,000 necklace to thank her for crashing the Oprah special and making him look good. In all, the interview was an incredible success, drawing over 90 million viewers, the most watched not only in Oprah's career, but in the history of television interviews. Tara Borelli goes on to quote Jackson saying, my most creative moments have always come when I am with children. When I am with them, the music comes as easily as breathing. When I'm tired or bored, children revive me. Two brown eyes look at me so profoundly, so innocently, and I murmur, this child is a song. The very next day, following the Oprah interview, on February 11th, 1993, Michael Jackson called June Chandler and invited her, Jordy, and his half-sister Lily to visit Neverland for the first time. Telephone Stories is presented by Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio. It's written and produced by me, Brandon Ogborn, and produced by Omar Crook. Our show is edited and mixed by Ross Morgan. Our story editor is Jim Newton, with research and fact-checking by Nona Yates. Jessica Gramulia is our music supervisor. Seth Weiss is our recording engineer. And production assistance comes from Namir Kalik. John Ahern composed our original music. Our cover art is by Jacob Sanders. And you can check out our website at telephonestories.org.